Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the question. What made him so special? What made him different than any other person ever? He made the blind see. The deaf hear. The paralyzed walk. He healed disease. He spoke with authority. He knew what was in men's minds. He knew what was in men's hearts. He knows what is in men's hearts. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That is the question. What does it even matter? Who is Jesus? That is the question. My answer doesn't matter to you. Only your answer matters to you. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Who do you say he is? Who do you say that he is? Jesus asked then. And he's asking now. Who do you say that I am? In some ways, Jesus has made that a very difficult question to answer. I don't know who or what you know about Jesus today. If all you know about Jesus today is the greeting card Jesus that's kind of a male version of Mother Teresa who exists to be warm and fuzzy and make everybody feel better, then maybe you don't understand the statement when I say Jesus makes it difficult in some ways to answer that question, who do you say that I am? But when you begin to examine the claims that Jesus made, when you begin to look closely at the things that Jesus said, if we're going to be real honest today, that question becomes more challenging to answer. As a matter of fact, one writer, James Montgomery Boyce, said it this way. There are many offensive things about Christianity, at least for some people. But the chief offense of Christianity is its founder and his extraordinary claims. Let me explain what I mean by that. Many of you today are like me. In a gathering on an Easter Sunday, many of you are like me, and I mean that. Here's what I mean by that. When I was a freshman in college, I went through a process in my own heart of examining the claims of Jesus. And as a freshman in college, I embraced everything about who Jesus is. I surrendered the control of my life to him. I embraced who he's revealed himself to be in his scriptures. And today I have no problem accepting everything that Jesus Christ says as the absolute truth. Many of you today here on an Easter Sunday find yourself just like me. You embrace Jesus. You have surrendered your life to him. You accept everything that Jesus says as the absolute truth of God. But I also know, 
I know that on Easter, there are many people that are in church buildings who don't feel that way about Jesus. I know that some of you are here today and you're here because somebody invited you to come or you're here because somebody hung a door hanger on your door or you're here because somebody slipped an invite card to you in passing or you're here simply to get somebody to leave you alone, right? (laughs) They've invited you and invited you and invited you and finally your will broke and said, okay, I will come. I know that there are people in a room like this that don't accept Jesus the way that I accept Jesus. Now, it's not that maybe you're against Jesus. You just don't believe he's everything that we Christians make him out to be or everything that we say the Bible would say about him. You don't consider yourself a bad person. You just don't accept everything that those of us who call ourselves Christians have embraced And wrapped our lives around. My prayer today. Is that before you leave. You will answer that question. Who do you say. That I am. Now maybe you believe you've already resolved that issue. Maybe you've you've examined this thing called Christianity. And you've said, you know, I hear what you guys are saying, and it's fine for you that you've embraced Jesus the way you have, but, but, but I just think he's a good guy. He, he was a moral teacher. He influenced people in a positive way. If you follow his teachings, then, then, then you'll, you'll, you'll have a good life. He, he's a decent person. He wasn't evil. He wasn't a bad person. But, but here's what I want you to realize today. We don't really have the option. Of putting Jesus in the good guy category. Now again, if all you know about Jesus is the the greeting card version, then then you can put that Jesus in the good guy category. But, But when you begin to examine his claims, when you begin to listen to what he said, the the good guy category falls off the table. You can't just say he's a good person or a moral influencer or a moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, many of you know the name C.S. Lewis. He was a, a, a great scholar and thinker, and he was raised in the Anglican church, the Church of England, but as a young man became very disillusioned with Christianity and with God, and he walked away and became an atheist, and not just an atheist. C.S. Lewis became his own testimony is he became an angry atheist. He wanted God to exist. He was just mad that he didn't exist until he began to build a relationship in college with a Another scholar and thinker and writer, J.R.R. Tolkien, who you may know, wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, those books that now we know as movies. J.R.R. Tolkien was a strong believer, began to influence C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis, with J.R.R. Tolkien's leadership, began to examine again the claims of Christ and became a devout follower of Jesus. And from atheist to Christian... He wrote a book called Mere Christianity. And I want to put a little excerpt of this book on the screen. I want to read it to you. Here's what he said. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. C.S. Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. C.S. Lewis says we got three options. When you examine the claims of Jesus, he either is crazy, a lunatic, certifiable, or he's a liar, one of the greatest deceivers of human history. Or, he is who he said he was. God in the flesh to save the world. I want to read you one of his claims. It's possibly the most offensive thing Jesus ever said. It's definitely the most exclusive statement he ever made. When you hear this statement, you can't say, that's a good guy. It's found in John chapter 14, verse 6. Here's what he said. This is Jesus. Jesus said to him, I am. The definite article. Very important. If he'd said A, not nearly as offensive. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And just in case that wasn't clear enough, he uses a double negative and he says, no one, it means absolutely no one, comes to the Father but through me. Pretty strong statement. I don't think we would hear somebody say that today and say, that's a good guy. Great moral teacher. Probably has some good principles to follow. How do you break that apart? Well, let me, let me share with you a couple of things about the claims of Jesus. Because I already know what, what some in the room may be thinking. Because Gallup did a survey 
of unchurched people in America, people that do not go to church, do not claim religious faith at all. And of the survey that Gallup did recently about unchurched people in America, they found out that 60% of unchurched Americans believe the Bible is an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded and passed down by men. So many would, the way they would deal with that claim of Jesus is they would say, well, sure, that's in the Bible, but the Bible's just a, a book of, it's the New Testament. I mean, it's stories and fables. It's been written over and over again. It's been passed down from generation to generation. It's filled with errors. You can't trust it. That's not what Jesus said. Well, let me give you the first principle I want to lay down today. The claims of Jesus are contained in history's most reliable document. The claims that Jesus made are contained in history's most reliable document. Now, that's one thing to make that statement, right? It's something else to support it. So that's what I want to do. I want to support it for you today. Because there are many who would say the Bible cannot be trusted. But listen, anybody who would say that, if that's where you are today, to say, oh, the Bible can't be trusted. Listen, you have not done your homework. Anyone who would do an honest evaluation of the Scriptures would have to say the New Testament is the most reliable document that we have from history. And I want to prove it to you. When historians and scholars are looking to verify the authenticity of a historical document, they look primarily for two indicators. All right? If historians are looking to verify a historical document, they look for two indicators. Number one, they look for how many copies of that document do we have? Because, you know, in, in, in ancient Greek and Rome, we didn't have copy machines and fax machines and emails. If they wanted to copy something, they couldn't just run it through the copying machine and then send it out to hundreds or thousands of people. What had to happen was the person that wrote it down would give it to somebody else. They would copy it and write it down, take it, give it to somebody else. They would copy it and write it down. So one of the first things historians and scholars look for to verify the veracity or authenticity of a historical document is how many copies do we have? Why? Because the more copies we have, we can compare those copies to see, are there errors? Do we get off track? Does this one say something totally opposite of what this one said? The more copies you have, the more you can verify what was written. Does that make sense? If it makes sense, say amen. Amen. I know you didn't think you were coming to history class on Easter Sunday morning, but hang in there with me for a second. We're going somewhere. Second thing they look for, the time gap between the original writing and the earliest manuscript copy we have. Now, here's what that means. From the time the, the author first wrote it down, how old is the, the, the copies that we have? Was there a big... Because if we only have a few copies and there were several hundred years in between the original writing and the copy that we have, what could have happened in that period of several hundred years, right? It could have become corrupt. The document could have been twisted and distorted. So, so what they do is they look for how many do we have? What's the time gap? They put those two together to verify the authenticity of a historical writing. If you got that, say amen. amen. I know it blessed you. You're, you're, gonna, you're leaving already encouraged today because you now know that, right? <laughs> well, well, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. How many have ever heard of Plato? Say, raise your hand, right? Plato. Plato, when the, in 400 B.C., 
was a Greek philosopher and mathematician. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, Plato helped lay the foundations of natural philosophy, science, and Western philosophy. All of, of that we understand today in the natural sciences is built on the foundation of the writings of Plato. Do you know how many copies we have of Plato's writings? You know how many? We have seven. You know what the time gap is from Plato's writing to the earliest manuscript that we have a copy of? 1,300 years. Is that good or bad? Well, we don't know until we compare it to something else, right? But now, let me just ask this. Have you ever been in a physics class and the physics teacher say, you know, we really don't know if we can trust the writings of Plato? No. We don't question the writings of Plato. Why? Because we got seven copies of manuscripts. It's been 1,300 years. Why, why question the writings of Plato, right? We know it's what Plato said. Let me give you another example. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was a great figure in history. Julius Caesar wrote a, a piece called the Gaelic Wars. It's the primary historical source from a major piece of Roman history. Matter of fact, his commentary on the Gaelic Wars provides the most surviving detailed eyewitness account of a military campaign from history. Many military campaigns have been rooted and based on the writings of Julius Caesar and the Gaelic Wars. Much of our civilization in America, the way we do government, is rooted in the, 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 the Roman period of governing and how they governed with the Senate and the, the government that was set up there. You know how many copies we have of Julius Caesar's writings? Ten. You know what the time gap is between the time Julius Caesar wrote it down and the earliest manuscript copy we have? One thousand years. I'm a history major. I majored in history in college. I never had a history professor stand up in front of me and say, you know, we really don't know if Julius Caesar was a real person. We're really not sure if Julius Caesar said some of those things that he said. Oh, they quoted his fact. Why? Because we got copies. Let me give you another example. Homer's Iliad. Remember when you were in high school, 11th, 12th grade, and they brought out Homer's Iliad and Odyssey? Remember that? I know we should have put throw-up bags in the seats, right? <laughs> those little airplane, because some of you are wanting to... Grab it right now, right? I had a little English teacher come up to me one day after saying something like that about the Iliad and the Odyssey. He said, oh, how dare, how dare you, Pastor, say something like that about the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's one of those classic pieces of literature. How could you say that? I said, listen, I just didn't have you to teach it to me so I could appreciate it like you appreciate it. I mean, you give a junior, senior in high school a book this big, right? The Iliad and the Odyssey, and you start reading that. Why do I bring up the Iliad and the Odyssey? Here's why I bring it up. Because not counting the New Testament, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey are the most documented source we have from the Greco-Roman period. Here's what that means. It's the best reliable historical document from that time period we can offer. You know how many copies we have of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey? 643. You know what the time gap is between when it was written and the earliest manuscript we have? It is... 400 years. 400 years. Now, I point that out because if you're going to measure historical accuracy, Homer's Iliad is the standard. That's the litmus test. The New Testament. Written from the same time period of all of these other writings. 
You know how many manuscript copies we have of the New Testament? Over 24,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament. 24,000. You do the math. 7, 10, 24,000. Look at the time gap. 50 years. We have 5,600 complete copies. That means Matthew to Revelation. 5,600 complete copies of the entire New Testament that all date within 225 years of its original authorship. Here's what that means. The New Testament is the single greatest documented historical source that we have. Here's what that means. You do not have to believe in Jesus Christ. You do not have to accept his claims. But you cannot say that people who do that, do that in ignorance or turning their brain off at the door. If you're going to answer the question, you've got to wrestle with the claims because they are contained in the most documented source of antiquity. When I read that statement where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no one comes to the Father except by me, that is verified historically in the most documented source we have from the Greco-Roman period. It's what he said. But not only that, the claims of Jesus are recorded by people who heard them personally. They heard them personally. And I don't want to spend much time here, but but let me just say this. Every claim we have that Jesus made was written down by people who heard it with their own ears and saw him say it with their own eyes. And when you add that to the fact that it's written down in the most documented source we have from antiquity, that's a pretty powerful one-two punch. Multiple eyewitness testimonies in a credible document. And these eyewitnesses, most of them died for what they knew to be true about Jesus. You say, why is that important? Preacher, people die in the name of religion all the time. Yeah, but here's the difference. You see, people who die today in the name of religion are dying based on what they believe to be true that somebody else told them and passed down to them. These eyewitnesses died for what they saw If they died for a lie, they knew it was a lie. And they didn't just die some casual kind of death. Some of them were speared and tied to the back of a horse and drugged through a city street until they died. They died violently. Why would they do that? Let me tell you why. They saw it with their own eyes. They heard it with their own ears. And they wrote it down. And it's been preserved in the most documented source of antiquity. That Jesus is alive. He's alive. So, here's the third thing I want you to realize. Based on those two things, the claims of Jesus demand a response. I want to read it again. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but 
through me. Now, that statement we find in history's most reliable document written down by somebody who saw it with their own eyes, heard it with their own ears. Now, you can choose not to believe it, but you got an intellectual hurdle you got to jump over before you put Jesus in just a good guy category. Because here's what Jesus said. Let, let, me, let me break that down for you in three statements. Number one, he said, I am the way to know God. I am the way to know God. Let me unpack what that means. It means Jesus said, every other way to know God but me is wrong. And if you think I'm adding to what he said, read on past the I am the way part. He said, nobody comes to the Father but through me. Now, you can't hear that and just say, well, that's a good person. I mean, imagine today somebody walks in the back door. They come right up here on the stage. They grab this microphone before somebody can get a hold of them. And they stand here and they say... I am the only way to know God. Every other way to God but me is wrong. We wouldn't go, you know, I bet he's got some great moral principles. <laughs> I, I think if I follow his teachings, I'll probably have a better life. No, if we have somebody walk, what are we doing? We're calling the police, right? Or we are calling St. Rose Hospital Psychiatric Ward and asking them to send an ambulance quickly, right? Why? Because if somebody claims that, they're either lying, they're deceiving, or they're crazy, or we better all get up here and get on our knees, right? You only got three options. That person's either nuts, they need to be locked up in jail for being a deceiver, or they are who they said they were. Here's the point. Neutrality is not an option when it comes to Jesus. When Jesus declared himself to be the only way to know God, he was speaking of our need to be reconciled. With God. He said, I am the way. The word way is a Greek word that simply means way, road, street, highway. The word supposes two points because the word way describes one point <coughs> arriving. At another point, it's a way. It's the the means by which you get from point A, where I am, point B, where I need to be. Jesus said, the only way you get from where you are to where you need to be is me. 
Here's the reality. God created you and me for a relationship with himself. What is the meaning of life? (laughs) I think every one of us at some point wrestle with that question. What is the meaning of life? According to the Bible, and we've already said, you got to deal with what it says. You ain't got to agree with it, but you got to at least deal with it. According to the Bible, the meaning of life is that God made you to know Him and to enjoy life in relationship with others out of the context of your relationship to Him. That's the meaning of life. That's it. Relationship with God, which enables me to fully enjoy my relationship with others. That's the meaning of life. But here's the problem. I want you to look at it on the screen. Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 says this. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. He uses two words here to describe sin. First, the word iniquity. Second, the word sin. The word iniquity is a word that means to twist or pervert. The word sin is to step over the line. Here's the point that he's making. Because every one of us, the Bible says, have sinned. We've all at some point stepped across God's boundary. We've stepped over God's line. We've twisted God's laws. We've twisted God's truth. And we've made it our own. And we've done what we want to do. The Bible says because of that, we've, because we've all sinned, we are separated from a relationship with God. It's interesting. The word separate that Isaiah uses there is the same word Moses used in Genesis chapter 1 verse 4 where it says God separated light and darkness. Think about that. Light and darkness can't be together. Because as soon as light shows up, guess what? Darkness is gone. They can't coexist. Isaiah says, because of my sin, I cannot enjoy the presence of God In my life, I'm separated like light and darkness. I'm separated from a relationship with God because of my sin. But here's the solution to that problem. Look at it on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. The word mediator is a word that means one who reconciles separated parties. How did Jesus reconcile us to God from where we were separated from God to where we need to be in a relationship with God. Why? Because that's why we were created. How did Jesus do that? Listen to me. The answer is Easter. Let me read it to you. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are what said out loud heal the word healed there's a word that means to restore here's the reality because of sin all of humanity were on one side 
and God was on the other. And sin separated us from God. And no matter how hard we tried, good works, morality, religion, doesn't matter. Nothing we could do could get us from where we were to where we need to be. Because we'd sinned against God and our sin, like light and darkness, separates us from God. It cannot coexist in the holy presence of God himself. Jesus came as our mediator and he stepped in between God and man. And on the cross, Jesus took all of the burden of my sin and all of the burden of your sin. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sin that we might be restored into a relationship with God. That's why Jesus said, I'm the only way for you to get from where you are to where you need to be, lost in your sin to in a relationship with God the Father, because I came and I took your sin on myself and I was crushed. I was pierced so that you may be restored to God the Father. He said, I am the way. But then he said, Two other things that I want to mention just quickly that give credibility to why he's the only way. Because some people say, okay, well, I get that, but why is Jesus the only way? Well, the two other things he said are the qualifiers. He said, I am the truth about God. This means he's saying any other truth about God apart from me is a lie. Now catch that. Any other truth about God apart from me, Jesus says a lie. It's not the truth. The word truth here is a word that could be translated reality. Here's the point. Jesus said, I am the reality of God in your midst. Jesus said, I'm not only the way for you to get from where you need to be to where you are in a relationship with God. Jesus said, I am God. I'm the reality of God right here in your midst. And if you think, again, I'm adding to his words. Read on down past verse 6. Because one of the disciples says, hey, Jesus, show us the Father. Two verses later, Philip says, show us the Father. You know what Jesus said? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we know it's what the early church understood because here's the way Paul wrote it. Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him, Jesus... All the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's our only mediator because he did for us what we could not do left to ourselves. God came into the world and took our sin on himself. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for our sin. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. But then Jesus adds one more qualifier. He says, I'm the only way to God. I'm the only truth about God. And then he says, I'm the life of God. And that was a statement about the resurrection. That was a statement that was all about Easter. Because listen to me. If all Jesus did was die, 
then we still don't have any hope. If you don't believe me, listen to the way Paul wrote it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what he said. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is worthless. That ought to wake you up on Easter. If Jesus isn't alive, you're wasting your time. Go do something else. Christ has not been raised. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, speaking about those who've died believing in Christ, have perished. If Jesus isn't alive, then those who've died believing in him, they're dead. They're gone. They've perished. He said, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. Bless their heart. Poor little ignorant Christians. Believing in a lie. Listen to what he said. But now, and you got to remember, he saw him. And we know he saw him because it's written down. In the most documented, reliable source we have from antiquity, Paul said, oh, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And when he's, and because he's alive, that changes everything. Look what Paul wrote next. He said in verses 21 and 22, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Here's what he's saying. Listen, don't miss this. In Adam, in the Garden of Eden, in Adam, we all sinned. And the evidence of that is that we all fell in Adam. And now we all live lifestyles of sin. We all choose to do that, which is opposite of what God would have us to do. In Adam, we all died dead spiritually from a relationship with God. Ultimately, every person in this room, no exception, will die physically. And apart from Jesus Christ, ultimately, we will die separated from God in eternity in a place called hell. But Paul said, yes, in Adam, we all died. But in Christ, we have the opportunity to be made alive. In Christ, we were, yes, born in Adam. But in Christ, we have the opportunity to be born again. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Jesus defeated death and made it possible for you and I to have Life, eternal life, which means knowing God in this life, living out my purpose and meaning and significance in this life, and then knowing Him for all eternity. So let me close with what John wrote in 1 John. John said, the testimony is this. God has given us eternal life. And this life's in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Listen to me. Who do you say that I am?